Hello and welcome to Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's co-host, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio. Vibe partners with patient communities to develop novel therapeutics. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, the other co-founder and co-host of today's podcast. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. Learn more at Clora.com. We're very excited to welcome John Lamatina, former president of global R&D at Pfizer and senior partner at PureTech Health. Great to have you on today, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. So to kick us off, John, and to set the context for the rest of the conversation, we'd love if you could walk us through the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. As people will be able to tell from my accent, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I was always interested in science and got a bachelor's, PhD, degrees in chemistry, and then did postdoctoral work. And then in 1977, I started uh, doing research for Pfizer in their Connecticut labs in Groton, Connecticut. I eventually rose over the next 30 years to become a wonderful job being a head of global R&D, which labs stretching thoroughly across the world. The sun never set on our research coming from Japan all the way through the United States and Europe. So it's a terrific job. I got to work with great colleagues and they taught me a lot. And hopefully I was able to help them out as well. I left Pfizer about 14 years ago and began kind of a, a dual arc, so to speak. One, I uh, joined the biotech industry uh, as, as a board member for a variety of different biotech companies, which has been terrific because I've been able to stay on the cutting edge of science with, again, brilliant young scientists and help, trying to help them with my experience and advice. And the second thing I've done is become a defender of the pharmaceutical industry. I've written uh, a few books now. The most recent one being Pharma and Profits, Balancing Innovation, Medicines and Drug Costs. And I also have a blog that I put on for. So people will come away from listening to this podcast with an understanding that I believe in the biopharmaceutical industry. I spent last 45 years involved in it uh, pretty closely. And I believe in the great works it's, it does, continues to do, and was a no greater display of that than in fighting COVID-19. It's work that I enjoy and I will continue to do. Well, we're really uh, honored to have you on this podcast. And obviously, you know, having presided over R&D at Pfizer at a time when some of the most canonical medicines that we think of today, right, like Lipitor and Celebrex, amongst others, were developed. I'm sure there's a lot of really exciting insights that uh, you can share. So you know, maybe to kick off, would love to learn a little bit more about the book that you recently published earlier this year, Pharma and Profits, I'd say, uh, is a fairly evocative title, right? So would love to hear you know, a little bit about what motivated you to write the book, as well as uh, some of the key salient points that you feel are most important to take away. Thank you. Uh, so first of all, drug pricing is a pretty huge topic, and even more so now with the passing of the IRA Act, which now was now the government to negotiate for the price of drugs for Medicare for the first time. Look, there are going to be debates about drug prices up and down. Uh, the problem is, and the problem with the debates that I've been having is that most of the information that people have is flawed. And the book actually is, is meant to teach all this. And a key part of the book deals with the pandemic. But you know, when the pandemic first broke, I would say that 70, 80% of all biopharma companies dedicated some part of what they were working on to either finding a vaccine, an antibody, uh, to other therapeutics antiviral drugs, et cetera, all because we realized that 
this wasn't going to fall to the NIH or academic institutions. It was going to fall to those people who know how to develop vaccines and medicines, synthesize, develop, and, and bring to market these things. And a miracle happened in space of nine months from identifying the virus itself. People were getting shots in their arms in November of 2000. It's unbelievable. No vaccine had ever been developed in less than four or five years. So it was a tremendous tour de force, as well as the antibodies that were developed and the antivirals and everything else. So it's, it's a great example of what the industry can do. And what drives me nuts is that now there's a revisionist history being told. So uh, I read something not too long ago that said that uh, there really wasn't much innovation to doing this. You know, the federal government really paid for all the basic research and the Operation Warp Speed provided some billions of dollars to do this. And, and there was no real risk involved in developing these vaccines. And that's garbage. Fact of the matter is, and I'm going to use Pfizer as the example because they've produced the most vaccines now. I, you know, it's my old company, right? So I guess I still bleed Pfizer blue to a certain extent. But nevertheless, Pfizer started out, first of all, it was in partnership with BioNTech, a German company that had Pfizer had been working with to develop mRNA vaccines, potentially to use for flu. MRNA vaccines were totally unproven technology. Anthony Fauci, who I have a great deal of respect for, was first talking about them. He said we'd approve one if they were 50 or 60% effective, which is actually the effectiveness of the annual flu shot you get. So that was where the bar was sort of set. So Pfizer took no money from the government. As the CEO said, well, we're going to invest a billion dollars in this and a billion dollars won't break us. Well, it turned out that they invested $2 billion. And the previous year's sales had only been about $41 billion. And it might not have broken uh, the company, but boy, he was a relatively new CEO. And I'm sure his board and shareholders would not have been thrilled if he threw away $2 billion on what could have been a worthless vaccine. So the thought that there was no risk involved and the government paid for all this is really not true. Now, to a certain extent, Pfizer did tremendously well, as did Moderna. And, and so in the first year, Pfizer projected $36 billion worth of sales, I believe, of its vaccine share and profits would be shared with BioNTech as in the next year, another equivalent amount. And so I, I was interviewed at about that time. So this is now in 2021. I was interviewed by a British journalist who quoted me those numbers and said, well, how much of this money should Pfizer be allowed to keep? And I was stunned uh, by such a comment. I, and I said, well, well, let's get this straight. You know, Pfizer took no money from the government. They put a lot of money at risk. And, you know, it's not as if they're charging an outrageous amount of money for the vaccine. For two doses, it was $39. Uh, to put that in perspective, I take the more potent of the flu shots every year. That's double the cost. That's in the order of uh, $75. And the flu shots, as I mentioned, are not as effective as the 95% effectiveness of the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines. And in fact, what Pfizer also did was, that's only the price for Western nations. For places, middle level income countries, uh, the price is only about uh, $20 and it's sold at cost to, to poorer nations along the way. So, you know, Pfizer did nothing untoward their pricing. They came around and saved the world. And yet what people focus on are the profits and how much of this they deserve to cost. They forget about places like New York City in 2020 having refrigerated trucks outside hospitals where they had to load the bodies because so many people were dying on the order of 800 or so a day that they had no place to put these bodies. So here, the industry went about and, and saved us from an enormous amount of that. There was an analysis put out recently that said from 
the middle of December of 2020 to uh, April of 2022, the estimates are that COVID-19 vaccines have prevented almost 2.3 million deaths, 17 million fewer hospitalizations, 66 million fewer infections, and almost $900 billion in healthcare costs. It's an unbelievable achievement for this industry and what it's done. And yet, we're now getting a rewriting of history. Uh, well, they didn't really take any risks and, and the government really paid for everything, all of, all of which is not true. So as you can tell from the tone of my voice, it's these sort of misconceptions and rewriting of history that really drives me nuts. And that's why I wrote Pharma and Profits. And Pharma and Profits talks about the vaccines, but it also talks about other areas like hepatitis C drugs, insulin, and a bunch of other areas where there's a lot of misconceptions about out there about the cost of drugs and et cetera, and then what needs to be done. And then and I also talk about the impact that the uh, new legislation will have on R&D, which is going to be considerable going forward. Indeed. You know, one area I'm curious to get your feedback on is the rare disease space. Obviously, compared to larger indications, the market opportunity isn't quite the same, but obviously there's a tremendous amount of unmet medical need, and we're also seeing a lot more heterogeneity in disease. Curious how you think about the sort of new new understanding around disease and its genetic origins impacting the innovation model and our ability to finance some of this work. Interestingly enough, most companies are shifting away from the traditional, and I'm talking about the big pharma company, from the traditional big areas of research, heart disease, a lot of good drugs that treat heart disease right now. Uh, Statins are universal. They're safe. I've been on one for 30 years now. They're excellent drugs. Drugs that treat blood pressure are, are pretty important. Their uh, companies have gotten away from the neuroscience area, diseases like schizophrenia, depression, et cetera. There are good drugs out there to treat those diseases. On the other hand, there are still some needs, but companies have really shifted more to smaller diseases. So if you look at a company like Pfizer that made its mark in anti-infectos uh, and cardiovascular drugs and diabetes drugs and CNS drugs like uh, Zoloft and Geodon and, and others, it's interesting. You can go on the Pfizer, on Pfizer website and you can see their whole clinical pipeline. And half of their research pipeline is in oncology. Fascinating area to think about and, and to work in right now. A lot of what they're doing is vaccines, not just now for uh, COVID, but also for, for things like flu, RSV, and other vaccines, which are all in, important areas to be in, but also a large chunk in rare diseases, which would not have happened as much as a decade ago. Now, why is that? Why, why is this total shift? Well, for one thing, these are areas of major medical need, no doubt about it. Oncology, of course, is a key one. President Biden has lost his cancer moonshot, which uh, I think is, is a good thing. But rare diseases are diseases that maybe only 10 or 20,000 people in the United States may have at a given time. But genetic research they're coming up with new targets that can treat a lot of these rare diseases. And you can do pretty well with a disease that maybe only treats 50 or 60,000 people, but where each person may cost the healthcare system $100,000, $200,000 a year. And so you see a lot more of, of areas where companies are investing in diseases where there's major medical need, but also diseases where, to be frank, you can get reasonable pricing to justify going in, into those areas. Yeah. And John, you mentioned the new legislation that was passed. Would love to hear your perspective on how biotech leaders should be thinking about that legislation and perhaps what changes folks should be anticipating. 
The legislation, for the first time, as I said earlier, allows the government to negotiate pricing, Medicare in particular, to negotiate pricing for drugs. It starts slow. I think in 2027, they'll pick the top 10 drugs that Medicare is spending money on. They'll add another 20 drugs the next year, and maybe another 20 drugs the year after that. First of all, what the audience has to appreciate is that the biopharmaceutical industry, not just big companies, but smaller companies as well, invest on average 25% of their top line revenues. So for every million dollars in sales, not profits, in sales that a company gets, they'll take $250,000 and invest it directly in R&D. There is no doubt that the government with these negotiations will impact the amount of money that will go into R&D. So current estimates are that over a 10-year period, this will save government spending, I think it's about $300 billion. So 25% of that is about $75 billion less money will go into R&D. Now, that's over a 10-year period, but you know, $7.5 billion is about what Pfizer invests in a year of R&D. So you're, you're taking away a significant amount of money invested in R&D at a time when the opportunities are unbelievable. Science has been exploding. A greater understanding of diseases is going on and on. And so if anything, we should be investing more in R&D then what will happen is part of it. The second thing that the bill got wrong is that they will start negotiating for a drug after it's been on the market for nine years for a small molecule drug and for 13 years, I believe, is a large molecule drug. Now, the problem with that is the small molecule drugs, A, when they make a lot of their profits will come in the latter part of their patent lifetime, which is only about 14 or 15 years. So you're now starting to say, we're going to negotiate pricing on this drug, on these drugs, which effectively will lower the price of it for the remaining three or four years of their life. That's not necessarily happening for the large biomolecules, which by the way, tend to be more expensive. The small molecules are the pills that people take and you just go to CVS, you get your prescription, you go to CVS and you get it taken at home. The large molecule drugs are drugs that have to be administered in a hospital setting or in a clinic. And just the administration of those twice a month, once a month, however often it's done, costs $2,500. In effect, they sort of got things backwards. They probably should have had to negotiate at least 13 years for both. But having 13 years for the small molecules, which go generic more quickly than the large molecules, is also a major mistake as well. So they, you want to encourage people to take the medications that a, can treat their disease by lowering costs, lowering hospital costs. If you don't have to go to hospital, take it. You do far better by doing that. And so it's unfortunate how it was passed. And I have to tell you that eventually, because the government never just stops at, at a little bit of the way, right? This will continue. It continue. It'll be all drugs. And it'll probably be all drugs after nine years, et cetera. So it's going to have a particularly Im- impact on this. Now, if I had my old job at Pfizer and I see this, how am I going to respond? Well, to be honest, I have to look out for my company and the company doing well. And the drugs for things like rare diseases, gene therapies, antibody therapies are all areas where I can have a longer marketing life without negotiations than I can for small molecules. So I'm going to say, well, if I, I can invest, maybe I'm investing right now 50-50s, large molecules, small molecules. I may invest in 25% small molecules and 75% large molecules because A, they're all still for major medical needs. They're important drugs to get. And my company will do better being able to market those without price negotiations for a longer period of time. So that's a directive. And I have seen venture capitalists now starting to say, well, you know, our latest fund has $1.2 billion to invest in, in early stage companies. But you know, 
we're going to invest where we can get a bigger return on our investment. A bigger return on investments is going to be more toward large molecules and small molecules, and it's pushing research in the wrong direction. So I, I think there's some substantial impact through the Inflation Reduction Act and, and something that uh, will be unfortunate, I think, going forward. And John, you know, as you articulated, there's several competing forces across pharma and biotech right now, where on one hand, the pace of scientific innovation and the tools that we have continue to improve. That's juxtaposed by, you know, talk about drug pricing, new legislation being passed, et cetera, et cetera. As you think about the biotech ecosystem as a whole and financing for biotech, how has that changed over the last couple of years? And where do you see that heading given the background that you just provided? Yeah, we've gone through some incredible boom and bust periods uh, in terms of funding. Obviously, the, the big pharmaceutical companies uh, have increased the amount they're investing in R&D. You know, in my day, it was maybe 15 or 16%. So I'm envious of the current heads of R&D who are getting uh, these terrific budgets to work with, and they're doing a great job with it. The biotech area, as the economy does, so does investment, right? VCs will have more money to invest when the economy is doing well and people have money to put into these funds. And so uh, when the housing crisis hit, things were pretty tough. There were a few uh, new companies being formed, a few IPOs. And then as the teens uh, continued uh, from 2012 or 13 to about 2019, there was a boom. There was tremendous amount of investment by venture capital firms. A lot of interesting ideas are being funded. Some a little bit out there, but enough things that were successful to to enable continued funding. But now, with the latest impact on the economy, uh, the numbers for the new IPO filings in biotech have really plummeted, probably now for about eighteen months. And so uh, that's unfortunate because there. A lot of ideas going, just not being funded at all right now. And, and that'll continue. Now, you hope the cycle will reverse and in another year or two, uh, this will turn around. But it's a tough time right now uh, in the biotech area with a lot of places cutting back, a lot of companies folding. It's, it's just hard to see because there's still a lot of, it's not the ideas haven't gone down. It's the money to invest in the ideas that's, that's been reduced drastically. Yeah. And John, you said on a couple of boards, I, I'm curious how you view your role as a board member and particularly in, in this environment. I had a pretty big job and I got to experience the, uh, the successes and the failures of hundreds of programs. And, and obviously in my industry, the failures outnumber the successes by about nine to one. So, so, so you, you learn a lot from doing things like that. You also know what a big company looks for. So when I was at Big Pharma, Biotech companies would come and look to deals with Pfizer and vice versa. Pfizer would go to uh, biotech companies look to do things. But you know, I know what a big company looks for. And I, and, I, and I hope that experience is valued by the various boards that I've served on over the years. I bring that to it. I, I, I know, and I can even bring examples, uh, real life examples of things that failed and why they failed and things that worked and, and try and translate it to the programs that the company's actually working on. In fact, some of that is, is some of the best fun of fun I have in doing these jobs, working with these project teams and talking about them. Have you considered this? You know, I had this experience here. Why are you doing this? And I think it's mutually beneficial. So yeah, I, I, I love it and I enjoy doing it. Yeah, amazing. You know, one of the things that you commented on earlier is the proliferation of science and modalities that has emerged in drug development. I think of it as additional arrows in our quiver to go and defeat a disease. But one of the challenges I think we've observed recently, especially with cell and gene therapies in particular, is tremendous promise, but also tremendous cost from a manufacturing and distribution standpoint. Here's an interesting story for you. 
I was going out to JP Morgan. This goes back some years now, obviously pre-pandemic. And I and I get into a cab coming back, coming from the airport to the meeting. And the cab driver says to me, uh, well, are uh, you going to this meeting? I said, yeah. Well, you know, all these drug companies, they have cures for all these diseases. Uh, excuse me? So, oh, yeah, but you know, they're not telling anybody about them because if you cure diseases, then who are they going to sell their drugs to? You know, it just kills their markets that are all hidden. And I said, oh, you can let me out at the next corner. You know, I, I don't need to go any further. Uh, uh, but to a certain extent, he raised a very interesting point. Gene therapy cures diseases. How do these companies basically deal with curing a disease? And it really comes down to how you value a life. So in Europe, uh, and I'll use the UK as an example, they actually put a price on life when they're deciding how much they will give uh, agree to or a drug company to price their therapies. And in, in the UK, it's around $50,000, about 30,000 pounds. Well, the pound has come down now, but you know, say it's $40,000 per year of life. It, there's a term for it, quality, quality of life, which is not just somebody laying in a bed with an IV tube, it's somebody who's really has, has a life going forward. Well, if you have a gene therapy, to treat somebody with a childhood leukemia, and this is an exact case, what do you charge for that? You're now taking somebody who the worst, worst thing that can happen to any parent is the loss of a child, particularly a young child. And now you restore their health. One of the first people to get a gene therapy uh, some years ago is now turned 10 years old. There's pictures of her on the internet. And, uh, it's, just one, it's just wonderful to see. Well, how do you price it? Well, with, with this particular leukemia uh, drug I'm thinking about now, gene therapy, Novartis markets it for $2.1 million. How outrageous is that? Well, you're restoring 60, 70, 80 years of life to a person. Look at what that person's going to contribute for the rest of their life, but whatever career they charge, how taxes they paid. I mean, to a certain extent, you can argue that's a pretty good bargain, $2.1 million. And generally, these are not large diseases right now. So it's not as if you're going to be selling you know, millions and millions of these. It's more on the order of maybe 10,000 or so. So I think to motivate the companies to do this, which I think is very important, a price in, in the order of a million dollars is about right. Now, there's got to be some caveats with that. So for one thing, you don't just charge everything up front. You spread those payments out over a period of time. I think it was Novartis is over five years. The second thing is you don't charge anything for six months or so do you see if the therapy is taken and, and it's worked out well. And then I think if for some reason the effect wanes, we haven't gotten to that far, then the company should not be charging $2 million the second time around. It should be substantially less than that. But I think you can come to a system where people are happy, the, 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 the miracle cures are there, and companies are getting a real return on their investment. Um, I'll raise one other point. And that is, like I said, in other countries, the United States hasn't put a price yet on life, but FDA has. So interestingly enough, when the FDA has to go to Congress to say, we want to change the labels on cigarette packaging because we think we want to make them more severe and, and to really help deter people from starting to smoke, et cetera. Well, clearly Congress will say, well, how do we know what's the economic benefit for doing this? So Congress now... Uh, has, and they have done this. They've put a life and they've estimated, well, you know, for every lung cancer death a year of life, we, we, we save people. We think it's worth $200,000 a year. So it says that, well, the U.S. values life more than European countries does. <laughs> but it'll be an interesting debate to have when you start negotiating prices, I think, for gene therapies, which, which may happen down the line. We'll see. Yeah. And John, you know, over the last couple of years, we've also seen a number of folks from big pharma jumping to biotechs. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about A, that trend, and then B, 
given all that you've seen both across big pharma, sitting on boards of biotechs, et cetera, if you have any recommendations for how they should think about their role in biotech differently than at big pharma? It's not unusual for me to be asked by young students, not that young, at graduate students and people getting ready to get their PhD. And they'll ask me, you know, what should I do? Should I go into big pharma? And Pfizer sounds like a great place. Or should I go into one of these new biotech companies? The advice I give is one based on you have to know yourself and know where you'll be most comfortable. You go to a place like Pfizer, you'll be part of a, a, a project team, which will be pretty exciting. Say you're the chemist, you'll have a biologist, you'll have a toxicologist, you'll have clinicians on your team and everybody pulling their weight in terms of bringing their own expertise to try and successfully come up with a new drug. But you're part of the team. It's like a baseball team, I guess. You have a shortstop, a catcher, a pitcher. Everybody does different things along the way, but everybody's trying to contribute to go forward. But you'll be one member of a team that could be 20 people and you might not be the only chemist. You may be one of three, four or five. So I enjoyed that environment when I came out. Now, I didn't have a choice of biotech, but I would say that I like being a team because I learned a lot. Coming out of school with a PhD in whatever your discipline is, you don't know anything about drug discovery. It can be tremendously exciting. However, if you feel you want to be in an environment where you know everybody, where you're really important, you take a sick day, the program shuts down for a day or something, and that sort of go-go environment, you know, your company has a runway of two years. Right? So what you do is pretty important in the future, then biotech uh, could be a, a role for you. Although keep in mind that when the printer breaks, you got to fix it. <laughs> or you got an IT problem, you don't have an IT person to call. Right? So, so there are differences and a lot depends on, on your personality. Now, getting back to what you asked me, I found that there are people who have been in big pharma who feel they have the ability to run something, to run, you know, they've been part of a team, but boy, they'd like to go to a biotech company and, and maybe be the chief scientific officer or boy, the, be the, the head of discovery research or something like that. And coming from a big pharma company, these smaller companies would love somebody with that experience, right? Somebody who's been in Pfizer or Merck for a decade, has got an awful lot of experience about drug discovery, et cetera, and, or, or maybe they've been a clinician. So they've seen a lot of clinical programs. They can, they know how to get things done and, and, and bring a tremendous amount of expertise and knowledge to the smaller company. And so now that's a little bit more risky. Like I said, a lot of these companies, and particularly more recently, have runways of two, three years or so. You got to be prepared that if it you, you know, doesn't work out and, and your, your company goes south and you're on the job market again, you won't have a 30-year career at a place like Pfizer like I did. But the young kids coming out look at me as a dinosaur. You worked 30 years at the same company? What are you, nuts? So, uh, yeah, so each has its own benefit and reward. You just have to understand yourself and know what you want to accomplish in your career. John, just to follow up on that, specifically around talent now, given what we've been chatting about and the challenging capital environment and folks leaving pharma for biotech and a bunch of other dynamics that we've been talking about, I'm curious if you have any suggestions for how drug developers should be thinking about how work gets done across our industry, whether it be hiring full-time, outsourcing, any creative models that you've seen that you think are a significant step forward just around how we work as an industry. Sure. So, so a couple of points on that. Number one, your dollars are limited. And so you don't want to invest in infrastructure. You want to avoid that, I believe, as much as possible. One of the first biotech companies I joined, I met with the, the head of the company in Cambridge, and I said, well, where are your labs? They don't have any labs. In fact, they had only six or seven employees at the time. 
and uh, they outsourced everything. And they felt that was a way to really maximize use of the capital. There's a lot that could be said for that. So you have to marshal every dollar as if it's your last one. You know, people will say, well, you know, we've got a runway of 18 months, and particularly younger people. They don't have a clue at how fast that goes and how quickly that money gets used up. And so you've really got to be careful and make sure every hire you make is an important hire that you have to make. Now, having said that, it helps having have people on board and having people you can talk to uh, down the hall, et cetera. So you have to walk a fine line, but boy, especially in the early days when you're capital constrained, then uh, you've really got to be careful at the startup. Awesome. You know, I've got two questions. One is around sort of novel trial designs. You know, what we've been seeing in some domains is the opportunity to truly show the potential of an NCE once it gets into humans, right? That's the critical proof point that a lot of drug developers drive towards, and rightfully so. But we've seen, you know, it become both very expensive and take a lot of time to get to that point. But we're seeing some modality, some approaches like N of one trials, for example, as being an interesting path to be able to get to that clinical proof of concept. Curious what your take is on N of one trials and how you sort of see that fitting into perhaps the broader drug development infrastructure. That is might be the most controversial area in drug development. And it's come up now recently with trying to renew the uh, Pharmaceutical Drug User Fee Prescription Act, PDUFA. When government has gotten into this, and it gets into it in a good way, you have people, families who have somebody really sick, and there's this new drug out there that might be curative, or at least put the disease in remission or give the person a normal life. And people want it as soon as possible, as soon as possible. And they will blame companies for dragging their feet and the FDA for preventing and killing their family members for not being able to get this drug. The counter argument to that is the FDA is in cahoots with these drug companies and approving drugs on based on one clinical trial. In the past, it's always been two, but because of the dealings that the government has with drug companies, who, by the way, fund 75% of the FDA because of this, this Badufa Act. As an aside, Badufa was started in the 90s because the United States was falling too far behind the rest of the world. They were improving drugs two, three, four years later than England, France, Germany, et cetera. And so Congress, of course, had hearings and Congress said, okay, well, the FDA clearly needs more funds. So how am I going to give them more funds? I got it. We'll charge the drug companies a fee for every time they file an NDA, they got to pay. So we require them to have the FDA review, but they have to pay for the review. Okay, that's fine. So that was about $220,000 back in 96. In the latest iteration now, it costs close to $3 million to get have this thing. But as a result, 75% of the FDA is funded by drug companies and biotech companies. Well, now people say, well, because of this, all, uh, the FDA is partial and they, they give, they're granting all sorts of, of bad things to these bad, evil companies, and they're approving drugs just on one clinical trial. So- you have two opposing forces. You're doing things way too soon and you're harming patients and the patients say, what are you nuts? I want this tomorrow. So you have to get to a middle ground here. And the middle ground is one where, and this sort of exists anyway, where we'll approve on one study, but you've got to have another study up and running as soon as possible. The problem with that system is not everybody has been as diligent in particularly smaller companies in getting that second study up and running, and the FDA hasn't been diligent in following up and making sure that's happening. So how do I feel about it? I think on balance, it's a good thing, not because I'm a big biopharma guy, 
but because I'm sympathetic to families who need these medications. But there has to be enough follow-up and due diligence that, in fact, what they saw in their phase three trial is continuing to happen in the real world with patients and making sure you have another trial to potentially uncover any safety side effects would be important, important to yeah, do. Super helpful. You know, the last question we'll ask here before we wrap is uh, one that you know we ask a lot of guests. I have a feeling you're going to have a really interesting answer here, which is, what advice would you give to your younger self, knowing what you know now? Oh, boy. I haven't really thought about much. I, look, I was blessed. I never had the same job at Pfizer for more than three or four years. I was fortunate enough to be successful and to work hard and do well and, and eventually move up in position. And, and so I'm lucky. I'm blessed. I had the best job in the world for a scientist who interested in drug discovery. I ran Pfizer Global R&D. I've been blessed because of that to be able to work with some really smart people in the biotech field and to continue. I've had a job where I've continued to be learned, to learn, be challenged, and to hopefully help people come up with things that a million people around the world. So uh, I'm not going to apologize for my luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, no regrets in, in that regard at all. Wonderful. Well, John, it was a pleasure having you on today. And for sharing what I'm sure is a very, very small part of what you know about the ecosystem and, and just your perspective. Really enjoyed the conversation. And thanks for continuing to write books to educate both biotech leaders as well as the general public about the business of biotech and, and pharma. Well, thank you guys for giving me the platform to do that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.